Welcome to C-Suite Radio. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Little Wing is now streaming on Paramount Plus. I'm in a period of emotional upheaval. Is that all the oh, I don't care crap? A little adventure. Where are you going? I'm gonna steal a bird from the Russian pigeon mafia. Let's do it. Goes a long way. <laughs> Starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Life can hurt, but life is sweet. Little Way, Brady PG 13, may be inappropriate for children under 13. Now streaming exclusively on Fairmount Plus. Hey, Open Mic Podcast listeners. Want to share your opinions? Give me feedback or tell me what you're thinking. If you do, send me a voice message. Voice messages are an easy way for you to send me audio that might end up in future episodes of the podcast. They're the latest feature from Anchor, the platform that I use to make this show. Here are some things that I would love to hear from you. What questions do you have for me? What did you think of the episode? What did you think of the topic? Who should I interview next? Make up a theme song. I don't know. Do your best impression of me. I'll see all of your messages, and I might add them into a future episode. Anchor makes that part super easy. You can send me a voice message right now from wherever you're at, wherever you're listening. Just tap the link in my show notes, and I can't wait to hear from you. Again, thanks for listening to the Open Mic Podcast. Until next time, cheers, and be well, and enjoy today's episode. It's time for the Open Mic Podcast with your host, Brett Allen. Broadcasting live from the Bay Area studios, here at the Open Mic, no topic is off limits. And of course, you never know who may stop by. So sit back, relax, and enjoy today's show. What's up, everybody? Welcome into episode 136 of the podcast. It's good to be here with you today. We have a fantastic show lined up for you. Super excited. Jerry Williams, a retired FBI vet, 26 years. She's going to be joining me here in just a couple minutes. And we're going to talk all things FBI, exposing cliches, what the FBI can do and cannot do, how they work with interstate agencies, all kinds of pop culture questions I have available as well. It's going to be a lot of fun. I've been looking forward to having her on here for some time. So we're going to talk to Ms. Jerry Williams here in just a couple minutes. But I just want to give a big shout out to everyone who listens. Thank you so much for joining in weekly and just being a part of the show and following us on social media, checking out all of our episodes, everything that you do to support the podcast. It just means the absolute world. I'm excited. I really am. I'm living the dream and it couldn't be any better. Other than that, it's been a pretty good week moving along so far. The only sad thing is, is that I have a sick kid And so as soon as this episode releases, I'm headed down to the Bay Area to pick him up. We've got a cold. We've got pink eye. We have all kinds of crazy things going on. And so it's time to spend some time with Daddy and give Mom a break. So I'm excited to be with him. So this will be our last episode for the week. Switching things up this week a little bit just because of schedules and daycare, preschool, sick kid job changes, all of that. You know how that goes. 
life happens and so we have to adapt but that's okay so anyway enough chitter chattering for me let's bring on our very super special guest jerry williams Welcome into the Open Mic Podcast. It's good to have you here today. Thank you for having me. This is fantastic. Well, I'm very excited. We were joking pre-tape a little bit that this is the first time (laughs) I've ever interviewed an FBI agent and hopefully the last time uh, or talked to one, at least in this kind of context. So I want to talk about your background because I know before you were in the FBI, and let me back up for those listening. Jerry is a retired FBI agent of 26 plus years, but I've heard other interviews and read other things. Before that, you really had a completely different career. Is that correct? Yes, I was a juvenile probation officer. So how did that transition into the FBI? That's that's a really big jump in my opinion. Well, it is and it isn't because we have people coming into the FBI from all different types of careers, you would be amazed. So the fact that I was a probation officer probably is one of the most uh, tame, (laughs) tame uh, uh, transitions. But I was a juvenile probation officer in Newport News, Virginia. And I saw a newsletter that said the FBI was looking for women and minorities. And I had never really considered the FBI before because I didn't picture myself excuse me, as an, as an FBI agent. And, uh, but I saw this newsletter and I thought, oh, you know, I'll call and ask a few questions. And when I called the recruiter really took the time to talk to me and to show me how my skills did transition well into the FBI. And next thing I knew <laughs> I was applying. <laughs> so what about the FBI interested you? Because My real frame of reference, and we'll get into this more later in the conversation, is someone coming out of the shadows. Hey, we found you. We're interested in you. I realize that that's television and and quite sensationalized, I'm sure. But what does the recruiting process look like from the time you contact them till you actually start your first day one in the academy? Well, it can be pretty lengthy. It, it depends on how many people they're hiring and, and how complicated your background is or, and how many people are applying, to tell you the truth. But it can take, on average, about a year. Uh, it was much less time for me uh, when I applied, but it usually takes about a year because it consists of all types of phases of you know, testing and interviewing and background and polygraph and physical fitness test. So it, uh, (laughs) you know, you got to really, really want to be an FBI agent to go through the screening process. So what made you choose that? I mean, you saw the article and there was obviously a major appeal to you there, but what about the CIA or some other governmental agency? Why that in particular? Because they were recruiting. You know, to be honest, if I was really, really honest, I initially was interested because by joining the FBI, I would be doubling my salary. Now, this was so long ago. This was back in 1982, but I was making $14,000 as a juvenile probation officer. And the starting salary for the FBI was $28,000. And so, of course, you know, that just really, really got me interested. Sure. I was a psychology major, but the one, but the one thing that I need to make sure 
that I stress is that my roommate from college had graduated and had become a police officer in Baltimore. So the, okay. So the concept of being in law enforcement wasn't something that was really strange. I hadn't thought of it before, but once she became a police officer and then I saw this, you know, this, this, this recruiting, um, promotion, it was something that I thought to myself, yeah, I could do it. You know, I, I could do that. So it wasn't like I was getting into it blindly, but I will say that the initial interest was, you know, the salary. Oh, absolutely. From going to 14,000 to double. And then I imagine the ending salary. Now, were you a supervisor role at the end of your career or did you just continue to remain a field agent the entire time? I was a field agent uh, the entire time. I did do for six months uh, shortly before I, I retired. I was the acting supervisor in our Cherry Hill office. And that really cemented the fact that I did not want to be a supervisor. So, you know, <laughs> the FBI is one of the few jobs where people fight to stay on the bottom because if you truly love investigating, if you truly love going after the bad guys, you can't do that at a supervisory level. You know, you, you, you now are managing people and managing programs and managing papers. And, and so it's not like, I mean, getting a promotion is always, you know, a, a, an indication of somebody's, uh, you know, skills and expertise, but it doesn't mean it means something different in the FBI. The fact that you're, you weren't a supervisor doesn't mean that you didn't have a very successful and, you know, rewarding and influential and important uh, position in the FBI because the real work is doing the investigations. And so those people who became, you know, great investigators, great case agents working major cases like I've had a chance to do in my career are just as important in the hierarchy of the FBI than the people who became special agent in charge and, and assistant directors. It's, it's just a different path. So that already answered one question. So <laughs> just by your explanation. So if you're a supervisor or I can't think of the term where you're in charge of the whole agency, you don't do any field work at all, correct? You're just in the office managing people? That's correct. And uh, of course we need that. You know, we, we have lots of rules and regulations and guidelines and there has to be people there making sure that those are followed. Plus we need resources and manpowers and education. And so we also need to make sure there are people there fighting and supporting the case agents and making sure they have the things that they need in order to work their cases. But you do not, uh, you know, once you be moved to that management level, you're not going to be out there, you know, working the cases. And, and that's what I enjoyed the most. I can tell, I can just see it from the joy on your face, just talking about it, that you were very passionate about what you did. And, and obviously you still are today. So your expertise was financial crimes. Yes. So to speak, what, 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 what prompted you to choose that? How does that even work? When the academy is going on, do you just pick a field and then you get more specific training about what you're going to do versus, I don't know, anything else that you could have possibly done? No, it's based on the needs of the Bureau. And, and that is 
a slogan that you hear constantly and constantly. So when you first get out of the academy, you're going to be sent to a field office anywhere, anywhere in the country. There's 56 field offices, but those field offices also have satellite offices. So you could end up anywhere. And once you get there, it depends on what the office needs. You know, if, if you're a body and they need somebody to do background investigations or work bank robberies or, you know, pick up the slack on a, on a, a drug squad, that's where you're going. So it's always based on the needs of the Bureau. Once you've been in for a little bit, you know, for two or three years, you may start looking at areas and you've had a chance, hopefully, to do a little of everything. And so now you really have an understanding of what the FBI does and you can start thinking, yeah, you know what? I would love to work counterintelligence or I would love to work corruption. You know, I would love to work, you know, a a variety of cybercrime. And then that's when you start, you know, talking to the people on that squad, talking to the supervisor of that squad, volunteering and trying to work your way onto a squad working a violation that you're interested in. I really wanted to work public corruption. You know, the, the fact of going after, wow. you know, congressmen and mayors, and I really <laughs> loved that, but I couldn't get on the squad. You know, I couldn't, uh, the supervisor, you know, I'll, I, I think he was, you know, very sexist and, and, you know, I, I had a conversation with him and I could see that I was not going to get on that squad. But I got the next best thing, which is uh, financial crimes or economic, an economic crime squad, which basically does the same thing, fraud and corruption, but at a corporate or individual level, as opposed to looking at public officials. So financial crimes, that would be like Ponzi schemes, check fraud schemes, internet schemes, that type of crime, so to speak? Exactly. Advanced fee schemes, telemarketing, business to business telemarketing fraud, uh, though anything having to do with uh, deception and fraud and lies in order to get something of value from someone else. So there's a saying that I've heard that and I probably am going to completely botch this. So I'm, please correct me that, you know, with uh, there's a saying like with words, you can get thousands, but with a pen, you can get millions. Is that kind of, <laughs> did you find that to be true? You, you, you got it kind of close. Um, <laughs> um, <laughs> it's a saying that I think I made it up. And that is with a, with a gun, you can get hundreds with a pen, you can steal millions. And that whole concept comes from like right now, you know, of course we're, we're, we're talking over the internet, but if I were to walk up to you right now and, and put a gun to your head and tell you to give me everything that you had in your pocket or in your office, how much money would I get? Like 20 bucks, maybe. Okay. <laughs> now, if I was able to get over there and convince you to let me manage your investment portfolio, or I was able to talk you into purchasing or investing in my company, would I get more than $20? Oh, yeah. I I get emails like that all the time of these companies trying to convince me to do this or do that. Yeah, you would get way more. Right. So uh, it's so interesting. So on a typical case like that, what could a time frame look like to work something like that from say start to finish? Well, economic crime 
violations or cases always took time. So I would think the average, I'm just guessing, but my average case lasted at least a year. And the longer, longer ones may have lasted as much as three years because the difficult thing, and that's why I love them so much because they were like mind games. The difficult thing about a fraud case is sometimes you're trying to prove the fraud that there, there is a violation. For instance, when somebody robs a bank, you know the banks rob. The violation is bank robbery and that's set. Mm -hmm. Now you're just trying to figure out who did it, you know, who the unsub is. But when it comes to a fraud, you've got two people. One person says that I've been defrauded of a million dollars and the other person says, oh no, you didn't. You know, that you know, it was a uh, disagreement, you know, a, a Mm. A, a legal disagreement. So what you have to do in that case is prove that there was a fraud. And you can usually prove it by looking at the statements that were made. You know, this person said that if you give me this, I'll do this for you. And you've got to be able to prove that they never, ever had any way whatsoever possible to do what they said they were going to do, that they were lying, that they were deceiving you. And so they're fun cases, really, but complicated and complex cases that take a lot of interviews and a lot of reviewing of records. Now, I understand that being an agent is almost like a solo entrepreneur to a degree because you have X number of cases that you have to work. How do you manage all that? I and we'll get into this again. We're almost just bleeding into it at this point where a supervisor breaks into the office and says, why haven't you worked on this? What's going on? Is that really how it happens? Or is it a little less dramatized than that as far as someone managing you to make sure you're getting everything done that you're supposed to be doing? Yeah, it's all about time management because it, you know you could have... 25 to 30 cases, or if you're working a major investigation, you could have three or four, but it's about time management, what you need to do. And the thing about these financial cases, I'm just talking about economic crime cases right now. Sometimes it may mean subpoenaing a record, you know, putting a subpoena out and having to wait for weeks or months before you get that record, get those records. So you can't move forward until you get what you need. So in the meantime, you can work on another case. So it's really about time management and being able to do the things that you need to do to keep the cases moving forward. And, and as long as you can, you know, indicate where you were spending your time and, and what you've done on each case, supervisor who knows that uh, you're working hard is not going to jump all over you because <laughs> yeah, you know, you just have to have something in the file for each case, you know, at least something in there every 30 days. So you meet with your case manager every 30 days. Now it's every 90 days or every 90 mm -hmm. days. So if you're not able to make headway, so to speak on a particular case, do you reach out to your supervisor or do you ask other people on your squad to help you out or is it just a matter of, as you mentioned a moment ago, just kind of waiting for the documents to process and get what you need to, to figure things out? Yeah, it's, it's, it's you just waiting and you're figuring it out. I, I think that's like one of my favorite phrases that I use because I tell people that the biggest skill that an FBI agent can have is confidence. And when I was asked to define confidence, I said, it's your knowledge that no matter what you do know or don't know, 
that you'll be able to figure it out. And I think that's what it is. You know, you may ask for advice or suggestions for a case that's giving you, uh, you know, a little bit of difficulty, but the confidence comes in, you knowing, Hey, I got this. I'm going to be able to figure this out. I love it. So I want to move on to the topic of your book because you're an author and <laughs> pay to play was one of the coolest things that I've ever listened to. And the fact that it was dramatized, so to speak, made it so much, I don't know. I found myself some nights not being able to sleep because I would listen to a couple chapters and then I was like, Oh my God, I have to keep listening to this because I want to find out what happens. So you said, you know, you wrote the book because it was somewhat of a way for you to live your glory days of the agency and that sort of thing. Now this book, let's talk about <laughs> that because yeah. First of all, my, my, a side note, have you ever considered pitching that to like tel television or, or Netflix or something? Cause I think you would have a massive hit on your hands, <laughs> so to speak. I would love for that to happen, but you know, um, we'll, we'll, we'll see. It, it hasn't happened yet, <laughs> but I, I will tell you this. And, and I know, you know, this, that the book was inspired by a real case and it okay. was a, it was a case where two of my friends in the office, two very attractive female uh, agents just happened to be assigned. They were on the corruption squad and they ha happened to be assigned a case involving an LNI, which is licensing and inspection uh, commissioner here in Philadelphia, who was in charge of, of um, looking at all of the entertainment venues in Philadelphia and, and inspecting them. And of course, under those entertainment venues were strip clubs and he mm -hmm. loved hanging out in strip clubs. And just the fact they were investigating this guy and they were going in and out of strip clubs, interviewing the strip club owners and the strippers and the patrons, I just found fascinating. And I thought if I, I always wanted to write a book. And as soon as I heard about this case, I said, this is the case that I will uh, write my first crime novel about. Yeah, it's fantastic. And for those listening, if you haven't read it or heard it, you absolutely have to, because it's just fantastic. And the characters, the two female leads, are just so powerful in the way that they work and that they move things and get things done. Now, I were imagine you that- so, Were you a little shocked about <laughs> what I had? My I was. I was very shocked. But you know what? To be honest, it's not a surprise because I think that, you know, we have this picture of America, the this one particular place and all these things. But I think that world, I, I'm not familiar with it. So I was, I was kind of <laughs> appalled in some ways. I was like, is this stuff really happen? Like, but I think it does because of the corruption that would go into something like that. And, and I don't know, maybe not necessarily money laundering, but the fact that they were able to go in and out and never get caught, uh, you know, or at least not necessarily even that would be the right term, but just be able to connect with such powerful people is unbelievable to me. So my question would be, what do they think about the book? Have they read it or have they listened to it at all? Have you contacted them? How did that whole conversation go down about, I had this idea. What do you think about yeah, it? Yeah, they were really great. I actually met with them several times for lunch. They ha 
each had, you know, materials that they still had left over from the case, maybe, you know, TV, news programs, and uh, newspaper articles. I had tons and tons of newspaper articles. Uh, so I worked, they worked with me in, in getting some of the, the actual things that happen into the book. I fictionalized more than half of it, though. And so they were really excited to read the book. They, I had a huge book launch at uh, one of the casinos at Sugar House Casino here in Philadelphia. <laughs> I thought it was so appropriate. And they came to that along with the assistant United States attorneys, the federal prosecutors who worked on the case, and they all got copies of the book and they just absolutely love what I did with the story. But they like to make sure everyone understands. And I like to make sure that I everyone understands that the fictional female character is not them and it's not me because you know, she she has some issues. <laughs> yeah, she does. Yes. Matter, There's a lot of issues going on. Yeah, there matter of fact, sure. my husband makes me. He, he 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 I almost had to sign a contract that I would be very clear to people that <laughs> that woman, although she also has one son and twin daughters and her <laughs> and her husband is a high school basketball coach that it is not me and that I have never cheated on my husband, but our female, no. F but our female FBI agent does. And, and you're clear on that from the, from the, uh, you know, the first couple of chapters. So I'm not giving anything away. You know, she, she has had in the past some issues and this case brings up some of those issues and really re uh, wreaks havoc on, on her life and her, and possibly her career. Yeah, and I don't want to give too much away. So there's other books that follow this same storyline, correct? That you've written? Yeah, I, yes, I have. I have the the second book is called Greedy Givers, and it has the same characters, and it's in the you know the the second half of her of her cycle of dealing with these issues. And that also was based on a real case. It was a case of mine, and it was really cathartic uh, to to write that book because I always wondered the bad guy in that case, why he did it. And in this book, I was able to make up my own ending, you know, to resolve it, uh, my, yeah. my own resolution. So it's great. And there's going to be at least one more book in the, in the series to tie everything up. And uh, I haven't started working on that mentally. I have, but I haven't started writing sure. it because as you know, I'm, I'm, just about done and, and we'll have out uh, by mid-year my first nonfiction book. Yes, yes. And I want to talk about that. That's a perfect segue. So we'll back up just a little bit. There is a topic that I want to talk about, and it's one I've been I've been dying to talk to you, period, but specifically about this, even more so about what books and what TV get wrong about the FBI. Yeah. Because I feel like that what I see on television, there's no possible way on earth that some of this stuff can actually go down the way that it does. And you're actually going to be releasing a book here soon about that, correct? It's the armchair guide where you people can open it up and they can look at things if they're watching a show and go, oh, this is true or this is not true. Let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah, so the book is called FBI in Film and Fiction, A Manual for Armchair detectives. And yes, 
And what I found, and this is really funny because it was one of those things that, you know, it's like, you know, I hit my my hand on my slap my head and say, "Uh, duh, you know, this is a book because from the very beginning of my podcast, we haven't even talked about the podcast. We've got so much much to talk about. But from the very beginning of my podcast, one of my goals was to talk about the FBI in books, TV, and movies. And and from the very first show, I, I, I mentioned that. And I actually was invited to speak to the New York New York chapter of the Mystery Writers of America. And I thought, well, if I'm gonna go all the way up to New York to, to do this speech, you know, maybe I should do it on you know this topic. Mm. And I created at that time, 10 cliches and misconceptions. It has now expanded and has been updated to 20 cliches and misconceptions. But there probably are a lot more uh, out there. But these are like the top 20 cliches and misconceptions about the FBI and books, TV and movies. And now what I've done is taken those 20 and expanded them into a, a full book. So you'll have the cliche, I'll tell you what the truth is. Then I will introduce some quotes and excerpts from uh, one of the more than 150 interviews that I've done with retired agents. And then I'll also introduce you to a movie about the FBI, you know, that covers that particular topic. Yeah. I'm, I'm so excited about this book. It is, it's going to be 50,000 words of really information that, writers, people who write books about the FBI or read books or watch TV or write scripts are people who just want to be an FBI agent one day. It's going to be some of the most basic information and really in-depth detail about what the FBI does and who the FBI is. Yes, because for somebody like myself, who I'm in the, I was retired Air, I'm retired Air Force, so I have a military background. I'm an Air Force brat. (laughs) Nice. So we have that that, uh, common spirit there. But I I really didn't see any kind of action per se. But when I watch television and I see all these TV shows, and I want to talk about the new show, FBI Dick Wolf, because I feel by Dick Wolf, and I think that one really just puts it out there. Uh, as far as like a show that's actually about the FBI from start to finish, not an agency that comes in and tries to powerhouse a department, which I have questions about that. So I want to talk about your C- or your FBI blog that you started. Yes. So the show comes on, you're like, okay, there's a show about the FBI. Did you watch a couple episodes and just bang your head against the wall and go, this is crazy. This doesn't, there's no way how this would happen this way or you know it's coming out and you wanted to sort of get ahead of things and be able to demystify for folks what can actually happen versus what really does happen. It was really planned out because I was already doing this thing about, you know, cliches and misconceptions about the FBI. Mm-hmm. I mean, I have a wonderful uh, checklist that anybody can get that they're interested that that list out the 20, you know, kind of a, a pre-book uh, uh, PDF that I'm putting out there. But mm-hmm. because I was already doing that, when I saw that the show was being made, I thought, I'm going to jump on this right away. So 
even before the show came out, I had already written a blog post about the fact that it was coming <laughs> out. And then from the very beginning, since the very first episode, I watched this show. I even live tweet, you know, with every all the other fans. And then uh, the next day, I, I write a blog post saying, you know, what I thought about the show, what kind of things they got right, what kind of things they got wrong, where they took creative license. And I will say, for the most part, I really like the show. That's good to know. <laughs> it's a great show. It's it's so different from the universe that he has created. His other shows, you know, Chicago Fire, Chicago PD, Chicago Which Med. I've never watched any of them, so I'll have to confess. My husband loves them. He watches all I'm of them. I'm an addict, yes. <laughs> but I have never I've watched I've been one. watching, and that's okay, because this one is a good show, too. I've seen everyone from start to finish, uh, shamefully so, and the FBI has popped in on the Chicago PD side, which I have some questions. I guess they would be cliche-type things, so... I was reading your most recent blog this morning, which the episode I watched, the Partners in Crime particular mm -hmm. episode, and I've read all your, all, once, once we got this interview locked down, I, I read every blog that you did because I've been watching the show, but I was curious to see what you had to say about it. And some of the things that come to my mind that I would say is an overarching thing about the FBI is these portrayed, portrayed on film and television is that they're an agency that just kind of comes in, doesn't play well with other people. They just want to take over. And it's just a big, I don't know the proper term to use. Uh, <laughs> there's a term I want to use, but I don't want to say it because it's kind of inappropriate. But the, the departments start arguing back and forth and it's just a big deal. That's probably not so true, would you say? It's not true at all. And it's probably the most damaging cliche out there because it perpetuates a image of the FBI that just is totally inaccurate. In most cases, the task force concept has been at the FBI for years, way before 9-11, we had violent crime and safe street task forces where we worked hand in hand with state and local police officers. They actually work in our office as teammates, as partners. We pay their overtime. They, they have full security clearances, top security clearance, just like the agents. They can access our records, our databases. They can drive our cars. They have, you know, they're uh, assigned, you know, vehicles. They're just as much a part of the office as the agent partners that they have. And this is always, this has been the concept since in, in, in the early eighties that we've had these task force because there are different violations that there is a joint jurisdiction. And so mm -hmm. it just makes more sense to work them jointly, work them together. And, you know, I, I think what's so damaging is that if you do have a small police department where they don't have an opportunity to work with FBI agents, they may be basing their perceptions of the FBI based on the last TV show or book that they read. And so when the FBI mm -hmm. shows up, they're like, okay, here they are going to try to take over. And, <laughs> yeah. And there's that instant resistance. Um, but, you know, we believe and respect the, our law enforcement partners. And the main thing people need to know is that the FBI has no uh, hierarchy you know, above 
a police department or a state police department. You know, we can't tell them what to do. And we have to partner up with them and work jointly on investigations. Now, there are some cases that the violation is strictly a federal violation. But even in that case, it's so more, it's so much more helpful to work with a local police officer because they, they know the area, they know the people. And if we can combine our skills and experiences together, then we're going to be that much more successful on a case. So yeah, that's one that matter of fact, that's number two in my uh, reality checklist of cliches, because, you know, it's right up there as one of the worst ones uh, that has been perpetuated in, 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 in the media. I would say so. So there's no coming in and going, this is our case. You guys can work the perimeter while we go in and do all the investigating. It's far more of a team effort, right? Far more of a team effort. Absolutely. <laughs> but it makes for great television, oh, yeah. right? When you see, when you see a senior ranking ASAC officer for the FBI trying to double down on a police sergeant. I was just watching a show last night. Chicago, I Chicago PD, ironically, and they get involved with the FBI. And yeah, how did it go? Whole, <laughs> it didn't go well. And of course, I mean, you know, Hank Void of the Chicago PD. This, I'm actually, this guy has gotten away with so much. I'm kind of wondering how much longer they're going to let him get away with stuff. But that's a whole nother conversation. But it didn't go well. And they kept going back and forth. And then finally, they decided to share files. And then one agent was keeping details from another police officer. It was just a big cluster. And I was like, that would be more frustrating, I think, than anything else to go, well, come on, guys, let's work together. So another question, crossing state lines, jurisdiction, that sort of thing. If you're working a case, say, here in the Bay Area, and then you have to go over to, I don't know, Oregon to track of criminal financial crimes. How does that work as far as crossing state lines and working with para agencies as you go along? And that is the magic. That is the beauty of a task force situation because a local police department does not have a jurisdiction outside of their, their particular city. Not, mm -hmm. <laughs> we're not even talking about the state. So if they're working with an FBI agent on, say, a, a kidnapping case or a fugitive case, that's a win-win situation for everyone. Because now if you find out that there is evidence or a witness or your, your kidnapped victim may have been taken across line, across state lines, the local officer may not be able to continue with that investigation unless, of course, they're on a task force and now have been deputized. Now they can go with the FBI and do their investigations anywhere in the country. And so that is another uh, fantastic aspect of this task force concept and having state and local law enforcement working with the FBI hand in hand. So we, wow. we can easily, you know, as, as an FBI agent, you know, if I was on, and I was stationed in uh, assigned in Philadelphia, most of my career, but I traveled all the time. If I, you know, had an interview that I thought I needed to do, sometimes you can send a lead and ask an agent in another office to do it for you. But if it's a complicated case and I work complicated case and I wanted to do it, then I, I could go anywhere I wanted to, you know, when I went to Springfield, wow. Massachusetts, or I went to Denver or Florida, you know, I would go myself, but a local police officer 
does not have that does not have it as easy. Now he can, you know, call that local department and, and ask permission to come down there and and then work hand in hand. But a lot of times they don't have the money to do that either. That's expensive. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's not so easy. Book the tickets. Let's get on a plane and just go. I can't imagine. So some other cliches that I'm interested in, wiretapping, surveillance, all of that sort of thing. Film and television portrays it as, let's make a call, get a warrant, and we're into it. Is it that simple or is it a far more detailed oh, process? Oh, it's a to, far more detailed. Okay. To wiretap someone, to do any type of electronic interception, whether it be, you know, wires or oral or electronic, you have to prove to a judge that you have exhausted all other means of investigation. You have to indicate what you think you're going to get out of this wiretap. And you're going to have to indicate what probable cause is already in place to let him know that there is a reason to believe that a crime has been committed. You have to prove mm -hmm. all of that before you will be able to get a court order in order to do a uh, electronic interception. Wow. It's not so easy. interesting. <laughs> yeah. No, so it's not so simple as putting a wire on somebody and just going in and, and getting no. a conversation recorded. You know, I think it shows like, I don't know if you've seen, Ray Donovan, or there's all these shows where the FBI is doing things and they're wiretapping people sitting outside of people's businesses and houses. And it's almost like they're going rogue to a degree uh, because I don't care what my boss says. I'm going to prove this guy to be right or wrong or this gal. And you've just dispelled a lot of... <laughs> questions that have been burning inside of my brain for a very long time. And, and I think that, I, I love it. Yeah. And I think the main thing that people need to understand whenever they hear that, whether it's on, you know, an entertainment uh, show or they hear it in the news that, you know, that it was an illegal wiretap. Don't even think about believing it because even if it was, which it isn't because you have to have a court order. And if there is no sure. court order, the agents participating that and that, have committed a crime and, and could go to jail. But the, sure. but the other thing is that any information gathered, any evidence gathered through an illegal wiretap is useless. So why do it? You can't take yeah. it into court. It will be suppressed. So if you hear that there was a wiretap, you can rest assured that somebody has already <laughs> done something pretty bad because you cannot get a wiretap unless you've already <laughs> proven to the court that there's probable cause that a criminal act has already been committed. Wow. There you have it. There you have it. <laughs> That's awesome. I, and I want to move on to your podcast, but I, I think of the movie, the Jackal with Bruce Willis and Sidney Portier. I don't know if you've seen that movie, but I find that to be one of the most interesting FBI portrayals in films of all time because of some of the things that they do. I'm writing that and I realize down. I, that I'm you, not sure. I'm writing that down because I'm not sure if I've watched it. Well, you have to watch it. So Sidney Portier plays an FBI agent and it's got Richard Gere as well. And Bruce Willis plays 
a version of Carlos the Jackal, which I think was an FBI case that happened some time ago. But in, on a side note, you have to check it out. Well, on a side on a side note, I did an interview with the FBI agent who interviewed Carlos the Jackal, Jackal okay. three times in a Paris prison. So. <laughs> Well, there you go. So, and then you get into the whole Robert Ludlum world of Jason Bourne and all of that sort of thing. And that's just a whole nother thing. But yeah, so The Jackal with Bruce Willis and Sidney Portier, it's a great film. It's filmed in Chicago and Richard Gere. It's about Carlos the Jackal, but I don't know how, I don't know, you would probably know more because you've interviewed the case agent, but I digress. <laughs> I want to talk about your podcast, which I feel like everything that you do is amazing. But to me, this seems like a real passion project for you as far as being able to interview some of these agents. How did the podcast start and how do you go about deciding which of these people to have? Because you've had some pretty, I would say, celebrities, so to speak, of agents on your show. Oh, absolutely. I've been so lucky. I've had some definite legends in the FBI and the show. So it all started, you know, when, when I introduced myself, I introduced myself as an author and a podcaster. I'm an author first. Mm -hmm. So I, I, I need to, to stress that. So my initial interest uh, was to write books. You know, I love okay. reading crime fiction and I always knew that when I had the time that I was going to write crime novels. So I'm, I'm an author first. And so when my book was going to be published about nine months before I knew it was going to be published, you know, you're, when you're talking to your literary agent and, and, and everyone, they're always talking about building a platform so that you can, mm -hmm. you know, get creating a buzz for your book. And so sure, sure. I thought to myself, well, I could blog. And then I, then it hit me, you know, I'm, I'm listening to podcasts. Why didn't I do a podcast? You know, as you probably aware in my in the last five years of my 26 year career, I was the spokesperson for the Philadelphia office. So I went in front of the yes. media, you know, to talk about the the FBI. So I was used to being, um, you know, on the mic or on on camera. And I thought, okay, I'm, instead of doing a blog, it would be much easier to do a podcast, or at least I thought that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, you know, having, yeah. to, having to write a blog, I got to think of a topic and then I got to sit down and write it. If I just, <laughs> if I do an interview po podcast, it's so much easier. All I have to do is just yeah. get somebody on the, on, uh, you know, not so much. on the mic and ask them questions. Yeah. Not so much. It's podcasting for those of you out there who uh, are thinking about it, do it, but it is so much more time consuming than you can ever yes. think it would be. No, no clue until you do yeah, it. Yeah, no clue. <laughs> even, yeah, and just as a side note, to even set an interview up like this with Jerry is an honor and a big deal because had I started this a year ago and pitched her, I probably would have gotten a no because, you know, you have to really prove your self-worth. And Eric Hunley and I, which we both know and are friends with, we do this thing and we talk about this kind of stuff all the time. But yeah, I just want people to know that this is a really big deal and- to, I'll let you continue, but I, I, yeah, it's, it's a workflow that goes with it. Yeah, and, and I, you have and to I be do aware want, of that. And I do want to say that if you turn somebody down 
early in their podcasting career, it has nothing to do with, you know, you're not worthy. At all. It has to do with the fact that I've got so little time and to, to take the time to do a podcast interview for a podcast that fades out after, you know, five or six, you know, I, you just don't have time for that. So, you don't. yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm, uh, <laughs> we're all, we're all very busy, but I, I want to yes. make sure that, uh, you know, if I'm going to, to do a podcast that, uh, you know, that, uh, it's going to be, it's going to have been around already for a little while that you'll even, yeah. even if, even if you fade now, which I hope you don't, uh, I don't yeah. I have no intention but, to, but you no still way. have a wonderful <laughs> backlist that can be live and yes. accessible for, for years and years to come. And, and that's the good point, but I forgot the question. <laughs> That's okay. See, this is what happened when two podcasters get in a room together. Yeah. Shop talk happens. So just more about, you know, how you, you wrote the book and then you started the right, podcast. Right. You thought it would be an easy run. And then you start trying to book people and then realize yeah. this isn't as quite as simple as I had originally anticipated. Yeah. So at the beginning, you know, booking people wasn't that bad because, you know, I, Philadelphia is a, you know, good size office. I think it's like the sixth or seventh largest office in, in the FBI. So I have lots of friends and you'll, you'll look at the initial uh, interviews that I did. And, and many of those people were assigned to the Philadelphia office at one time. And so I, you know, quickly called on my friends and, and they, you know, agreed to do the podcast. And then as I got more and more into it, I needed to reach out to other offices and other people and most mm -hmm. people are very, very, very excited about the podcast. They love the mission of the podcast. They think it's important. But to sit down and talk about a case that you might have worked years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, and when it comes to the, like Watergate, you know, I've interviewed two of the oh, cases from Watergate 40 years ago. It takes time to you know, pull out your, your information and to create an outline so that you have a nice flow. I understand how long it takes because I've done two case reviews myself and I know how much time I spent on pulling all of that together. It really works well if I talk into an agent who wrote a book about the case. But mm -hmm. so I have people who are very interested, but they'll say, you need to give me some time to pull this together. And so there are times when, you know, I'm, two or three episodes away from not having an episode because the people that I have on, you know, on the line aren't, aren't ready to discuss sure. their case yet. Well, I can imagine, let's just take the Watergate guy, for example. How old is he at this point? I mean, that has to be like really... What in his 80s, yeah. 90s even? They're in their 80s. So I talked to... Uh, the, the main case agent who is Angelo Lano. And I was so honored and thrilled because if you Google Angelo Lano, you'll come up with his name, but you'll see that he's only done a few interviews, you know, a few, very few, yeah, a few uh, TV shows, uh, you know, like a, a documentary or something. And, uh, you know, I got to sit, sit down and talk to him and really get you know, some inside information about Watergate. And then there was such a big case that they had a lot of people assigned to it. I spoke to a second agent who also is in his eighties, who gave me like the color background, the things that the case agent, you know, didn't tell me, you know, he, he gave me, you know, that inside information. I'm just 
honored to have spoken to them because those interviews will be around forever for people to hear mm-hmm. directly from them. And they, and they both spoke for over an hour, probably you know, almost an hour and a half about these historically significant cases. Yeah, I can't even imagine what it must be like for you. But one last question about that, and then I want to get all your information out so people can find more out about you and your books. But let's say you reach out to an agent like that. What is their response when you come to them and say that you're a podcaster, that you're an author, and that you want to talk to them? Do they even go, what's a podcast? I I don't want to sound disrespectful, but I mean, I can't imagine like, this particular agent's probably done, you know, Dateline, Barbara Walters, you know, some of these, you know, Walter Cronkite type of interviews. And then you cruise in and go, hey, I would love to have you on my show. Like, what does that conversation even look like? Uh, yeah. And that is, uh, you know, an, a definite issue for me. I think early in my podcasting career, I was trying to use Skype. You don't know how many retired agents who don't have Skype, don't want to have Skype, and certainly have no idea how to nope. load it onto, you know, their computer. Telephone. Right. So it got to a point where I did most of my interviews uh, on the telephone using tape a call. It was it was something that I had to do. I needed to do, and I think the quality of my audio is is okay. You know, but there are some purists. And if I have anything negative, I I have mostly, you know, fantastic five-star reviews. But when there are reviews that um, are not about the podcast, but more about the FBI and they're negative, it's about, you know, people thinking that the audio is not great. Oh, yeah. But, you know, we all get that. But you know what? That's okay with me because it's the content. I cannot, Mm -hmm. I cannot get an 80-year-old to do a Skype interview. <laughs> no way. You know, no I, chance I, on earth. I have to call them up on the phone. Now, lately, I've been able to use Zoom uh, and 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 that's what I that that's what I'm using now. But even in that case, many of those times it's somebody calling into Zoom because these older agents don't want to have anything to do with the internet or computers. And so, well, I have a solution for you. Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you no, off, but ahead. I have a suggestion. Well, we can talk about it off air, but I, I have something to share with you that I used for a long time. So Ooh. continue. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you a pro tip because it worked for me for a long time. Because so I had the same issue as well. See, folks, you get podcasting, you get FBI talk, <laughs> <laughs> you get it all here at the Open Mic Podcast. So yeah, there you go. Yeah, but um, that's awesome. But I, I am I am proud of those interviews uh, that I've done. Uh, the content is unbelievable. The agents that I've spoke to, you know, I spoke to Donnie Brasco, uh, which oh wow, no, Joe really? Pistone. Yeah, I've done Joe Pistone. Okay, you know, all, now I'm yeah. Wow. I, I I have uh, the uh, wow. I'm, 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 uh, and I'm now I'm having memory lapses, but every major case, whether it be Oklahoma City or nine eleven or uh, the Unabomber, I have talked to the case agent on those major cases. And if I haven't, if I've missed a case like the DC sniper or on the Boston massacre, don't worry, they're coming. So, yes, um, yes. so I've been very, I've gotten a wonderful reception from the FBI agents. 
they from uh, I'm a member of the Society of Former Special Agents of the FBI. They've had articles with, uh, uh, about me in the magazine. I'm actually an officer locally in our local chapter and the national chapter. I'm on the Information and uh, Communication Committee. So I have mm-hmm. I have been so welcomed, and so many people are so pleased that I am doing uh, this uh, project of, you know, recording these, these case reviews that if anybody turns me down, it's, it's only because they just don't remember the details of their case or, sure. you know, they've moved on uh, and, and just don't want to relive that particular part of their, uh, of their life. Wow. Donnie Brasco, such a great film. Yeah. Oh my goodness. It, yeah. That's a great crazy. interview. I'm going to have to go back now to your catalog further back and listen to those interviews. That's unbelievable. So last but not least, Jerry, thank you so much for being here. How can people learn more about you? I'm sure they can listen to your podcast everywhere, but your books, your FBI blog, all of this amazing content that you've shared with our audience today. Yes. They need to visit jerrywilliams.com. And I have everything there. Matter of fact, about six months ago, I redid the homepage of my website. So it's really clear. You got my books, you got my podcast and you got my blog and it's all right there on the homepage uh, and on a carousel. So you can see the, you know, the last uh, number of podcast episodes and the last number of blogs that I've done. Everything is there. And, you know, basically my mission is to show the public who the FBI is and what the FBI does through my books, my blog and my podcast interviews with former case agents. Well, there you have it, folks. We have been chatting with the delightful Jerry Williams, retired FBI veteran of 26 years. Some amazing stories today. I've I've got more questions now than I had before, but uh, we have a time limit. So thank you, Jerry, for being here today. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you, Brett. It was absolutely so much fun talking to you. And uh, I'm looking forward to hearing this. That- Thank you so much. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed our conversation today. And again, thank you so much, Jerry, for joining me on the Open Mic Podcast. Again, all of her information will be available in our show notes for you to check out her books, her podcasts, all of it. Until next time, have a great weekend, folks. We'll talk to you soon. Be blessed. That brings today's episode to a close. Thanks for listening in. If you enjoyed today's episode, head over to Apple Podcasts and leave us a kind rating and review. It really does help. Until next time, cheers and be well.